Man, I'm, I sure am proud of, um, of these people who stand up here and lead worship for us on Sunday mornings. For those of you who don't know, we lost, we lost our worship director to the big leagues. They hired him at First Pres in Baton Rouge uh, at, at the first of the year. So Christmas Eve was his last time with us. And I got to tell you what, the people who lead worship up here do a fine job. So praise God for that. Uh, I'm glad that we are together again to sing praises to the triune God and to gather around God's holy word. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, this week, we're going to continue working our way through the book of James. And this week, we, we're going to start in the fourth chapter. And before we get too much further, let's pick up a little context about James. Remember that, that James identified himself in the introduction to this letter as James, a servant of of Christ. But we also know that James was also the, the half-brother of Jesus. And, and last night we were sitting around the house and, and my daughter came up to me and she goes, Dad, listen, I've been thinking. I've always thought that James was, was Jesus' big brother, but that's impossible, you know, because of the virgin birth and all. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. James is Jesus' half-little brother. And he probably grew up with Jesus and knew him well. Uh, James also is going to identify his audience for us so we know who he's, he's writing to. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Uh, and these 12 tribes are in dispersion were probably Jewish Christians who were fleeing persecution. So they were, they were Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Lord. And, and now because of Jesus as their Lord, they're, they're forced to uh, be on the run to avoid some cultural cultural retribution for their new faith in Jesus. And, uh, and these 12 tribes who, who James talks about, they, they somehow remain in contact with James. James has a relationship ongoing with them, even though they're scattered. They're probably writing letters back and forth to one another. And so James gets the privilege of, of hearing how things are going in their home churches, what's going on at home for them. And it's thought that, that much of what James is writing in his letter here, uh, is in response to specific issues he hears about in these 12 tribes in dispersion. So he hears about brokenness in their church, and he addresses that. So if you remember back a few weeks when we were reading James together in chapter 2, and James began to talk about showing no partiality in the church. For instance, if, if a rich man comes, how do we treat him? And a poor man comes, how do we treat him? It doesn't take too much imagination and a, and a healthy assumption that this is probably something that he heard about that was happening in one of these churches. Or three re weeks ago, he said that not everyone should try to be a teacher in the church. It's probably a safe assumption that James was, was hearing some of that going on where people were really trying to aspire to higher offices for the sake of just greater respect and, and, and selfishness. And today it seems that James has heard about another sin that needs to be addressed in these churches. I think it's a relative safe assumption to make that James believed that within the churches that are in dispersion, that there were some serious fights going on, some serious quarrels, some serious battles in these churches. And I know that's probably hard for all of us to imagine, but at times Christians who are in the church actually get into fights. Can you believe that? You ever heard of such a thing? It happens in, in healthy churches, it happens in sick churches, it happens in big churches, and it happens in little churches. And used to, like a lot of people, they, 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 uh, they think about the first century church or the early church as being perfect. Well, obviously it's not because James is having to address some real brokenness. And one of these things he's dealing with was, was fights within the church. And I want to tell you that, that while the context of the story that we're going to read today 
is James writing to churches about their unique con- conflicts. The wisdom that scripture is going to offer you today goes, goes beyond church fights. Uh, if you want to know why you fight with your kids, or if you want to know why you might fight with your coworkers, or if you want to know why you might fight with your spouse, uh, the word of God is applicable in that part of your life too today. James is going to give us a, a diagnosis as we read this scripture of why people fight. He's going to help us understand what causes us to clash with other people. And then James is going to give us, we're going to, we're going to get from a, a really hard rebuke. That's, that's, what he, that's what he does. He gives a really hard rebuke. And then he kind of turns. And at the end of today, he's going to give us the gospel. And so we're going to need that by the time we get through that hard rebuke. What we're going to do right now is we're going to read God's word so that we can study it well together. And when we do that as a church, we stand as a way of showing our reverence for God's word. So if you're healthy and able to, please stand now. And before we read this word of God, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And, and we do want to submit our lives to it today. I ask that by, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would quicken our hearts to hear it well. And, uh, and, and understand its meaning. And, and to have, God, the power of your spirit to submit to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, that gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and, and mourn and weep. Let your, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Last week we were together and uh, I imagined James addressing a large room of Christians. I imagined him addressing these these 12 tribes, these 12 churches that that, that are in dispersion. and, And that as he stood before them, he began to ask them this question, and I don't know if you remember this back last week. The question that he asked everyone is, is, is who here is wise? And I, told, I said, don't, don't raise your hand because a wise person wouldn't in this situation. Do you remember that, and that whole exchange? It was all happened in our imagination because really it's a letter that's being written here. But I can imagine that, 
that would happen, that James would stand before this crowded room filled with the churches that he wanted to teach and to mentor and, and that James had heard all about what was going on in their lives. He'd heard about their fighting. He'd heard about their bickering back in their home churches. And, and as James paces the room, he stops and he asks them this question. You know, what causes you guys to, to fight? What causes you to, to quarrel all the time? Why, why are you always at each other's throat? What's the root of all this? And in my imagination, there's this one guy who steps up and he says, listen, I can't, I can't speak for everybody, but in our church, we've been fighting because some people actually think it's more important to have a, a cemetery in our church grounds than to actually care about young families and, and, and have a new playground. Now, I, I don't think that's what people in the first century church were fighting over, but you get the idea. It doesn't take much for us in the churches to fight. In fact, uh, Tom Rainier has a list on his website of, of the 25 worst things that people in the church have gotten into fights over. You want to hear some of these? Some of the worst things that people have gotten in fights over. Uh, Rainier said he has been made aware that there is a church that is in serious conflict over the appropriate length of their pastor's beard. So I want to just encourage you to save all your wise cracks and your opinions. Another, another church had a is reported to have had an hour-long heated meeting to discuss the appropriate style of green beans to serve at Wednesday night dinner. Renier said that he was aware of an incident where there was an actual church split. You know, where one, half the people leave because there was one group of members who decided to hide the church vacuum from another set of members. And I want to know who these people are. I want to know these people that have a, a passion for vacuuming, and I want to invite them to join Lakeside. And, and they can come and, and be a part of what we do here, and we will buy them a Dyson or a Hoover or whatever they want. And they can just go to town. They can, they can vacuum all they want, and that's a promise from the front, okay? If you know people who are passionate about vacuuming. But in my imagination... As James was asking the crowd, you know, what causes you to fight? What causes you to missing the... There were these kind of answers he were getting that were really specific and, and they were petty and they were kind of missing the point. And, and I'd like to look at how James answers his own rhetorical question today. So, so if we can, let's, let's look at verse one on the screens behind us. What causes you to quarrel? What causes you to fight? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Stop and let, let's ponder that for just a moment. The reason that we fight, according to Scripture, is that our passions are at war within us. And I'm going to need to drill down a little deeper on that because uh, that can be a little confusing. What does it mean for your passions to be at war within you? Because if we want to stop fighting with people and stop our quarrels, we apparently need to get a hold of these passions the word here that James uses in the Greek and has been translated into the English to this word passions is this word hedonai. And uh, we derive from that the English word hedonism. Y'all have heard that word before, hedonism. And hedonism is a philosophy that believes that the most important thing in life is pleasure. And so hedonists sort of, they sort of order their life in a way to acquire the most possible pleasure. 
So if you imagine that everyone alive has something which rules their life, every one of us, every one of you has something that rules your life, something that sets your day-to-day priorities, and whatever that thing is uh, rules your life. Let's just say uh, it sits on sort of a metaphorical throne in your heart. I mean, I know you've heard that before. And the thing that sits on the throne of the hedonist heart is pleasure. James asks us, do you know why you get into fights? And I think that's a good question for you to ask yourself right now. Why do you get into fights? And scripture says, because there is a war within you for the throne of your heart. That's what James describes. An an inner war inside of you where your desires for pleasure are trying to throw Jesus off the throne of your life. Uh, and, and because of this war raging inside of you, Scripture suggests that, that it spills over to other people. And that's the logic. That's, that's basically what we get in verse 1. Let's look at how James supports his claims in verse 2. This is what he's going to say. James says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. And, and I'm not really sure if, if, if maybe James had heard about an incident in the, in the early church where there was a murder or if he's simply thinking about David and Bathsheba. You remember the story of David and Bathsheba. This, this really kind of lays this out for him. David clearly has this internal war raging inside of him uh, over who's going to sit on the throne of, of David's heart. On the one hand, King David loves God and he's a man after God's own heart. But on the other hand, uh, he, he has these passions and especially when he sees Bathsheba, And he lets that passion sit on the throne of his heart and he makes the decision to murder and that leads to conflict and death. And what James sees to say is that when hedonism sits on the throne of your heart, you're gonna be separated from God. And and I think what he's getting into here is a lot about your prayer life. Your prayer life is also gonna struggle and we we seem to, to get two ways that our prayer life struggle. First here at the end of verse two, it says this. It says, you don't have... Because you don't ask. When, when hedonism sits on the throne of your heart, even if you have just a little bit of spiritual sensitivity, I think you know better than to, pay, than to pray for what your passions crave, right? Uh, think, about what, think about what hedonism looks like for you. It's all gonna look different, but, but think about like, like giving in to, to the passions of your flesh. If you totally gave into that, what would it look like for you? Is that something that you would ask for in prayer? Probably not. That would that, that, probably be really awkward to ask for that in prayer. That's, that's the first person. Remember, we, we read in Scripture here, you do not have because you do not ask, and you would not because it's improper. And the picture of the second person we get is in verse 3. And so if we can put verse 3 up there, let's look at the second person whose prayer life is broken because hedonism is sitting on the throne of their life. It says this, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, this is the second person doesn't even have the spiritual wisdom to know that they should not pray for those hedonistic pleasures. And so they begin praying to God that God would fulfill their hedonistic pleasures. Uh, can you imagine a man praying to God for another man's wife? Doesn't make sense. Or the greedy man who, who prays to God for just one more Ferrari. Or the guy who prays, uh, Lord, let this murder keep me out of trouble. Right? Like, like it doesn't work like that. Your prayers for hedonistic passions are not answered. What happens next is James hits us with an indictment. And he's talking to all of us who have 
who have kicked Jesus off the throne and who have replaced Jesus instead with hedonism. And so I want to challenge you today to be real honest. Before you decide that this isn't about you, I want to tell you that God knows your checkbook, he knows your calendar, and he knows your web browser. This is what he says. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James calls us an adulterous people. The accusation is not that we've cheated on our spouse. It's something much worse. It's, it's the accusation that we have cheated on our Savior, that we've, we've somehow cheated on Jesus. James says to his friends who have professed Christ, you've betrayed and cheated Jesus. In this way, you're adulterers. He redeemed you from death. He made you his own. He clothed you in righteousness. He gave you his name. And, and you said, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now get off the throne of my heart so that I can do all the things that bring me pleasure. I want to do everything that this world has to offer. I want it all. The way James continues to describe this betrayal is to say that we've become friends with the world. We become friends with all the ways the world has to satisfy our pleasures. And listen, we live in an age where you can satisfy whatever passions you can dream of. Let me take a, a side road for a second. My grandmother, uh, Frances Evans, she uh, listens to a lot of my sermons. She's 99 years old. To, um, not today, but you know. And, and my mom sits with her, and they get to listen to my sermons. Now, my, my grandmother's been in a, in a memory care unit for 15 years. And uh, uh, way back when I was growing up, she was the Texas history teacher of the year for the state of Texas, for the entire state. Uh, so, so what that means is that, uh, well, one, she was a pretty big deal, and two, she was, she was like the best at telling stories. She was like the world's greatest storyteller. And, and what that meant for me is that I grew up listening to stories of the origins of the great republic of Texas. We didn't have iPhones when I grew up. We didn't have iPads. We had Mimi, right? And, and Mimi, Mimi would entertain us. And, and, you know, when my parents would, would send me over to my Mimi's house, uh, you know, to spend the night so that they could kind of just get away from us because we were kids. And that's what we do with y'all kids. Um, I, you know, she put me to bed by telling me stories of Texas. And one such story centered around Colonel William Travis. Colonel William Travis was a 26-year-old young man, if you think about it, 26, who found himself leading 189 men. And these men were all held up and, and surrounded in a, in a Texas mission in San Antonio that most of you know as the Alamo. And these men were surrounded by this Mexican general, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And Santa Ana had, had brought with him several thousand Mexican soldiers, those guys that were in the Alamo were vastly outnumbered. And as, as Colonel Travis sought these Texas heroes, they only had three options. They could surrender, in which case they would be executed. They could try to flee, in which case they would be cut down as they ran. Or they could stay and fight. And as Travis put it, remain in this fort, resist every assault, and sell our lives as dearly as possible. Now, as a Texan, that is a romantic line. Legend has it that uh, this 26-year-old Travis drew his saber, and he slowly marked a line in the dirt, not saying much at first, 
walking before his men, finally speaking and saying, I now want every man who is determined to stay here and die with me to come across this line. Of the 189 men, only one did not cross the line and give his life to die. Now, apparently, that's where we get this saying of, of drawing a line in the sand. I'm sure you've heard that before. So the question you should be asking yourself is, why is the preacher going on and on about Texas? Middle of the sermon. Here's the deal. I want to suggest to you that James 2, that James also is drawing a line in the sand. The brother of Christ writes to early Christians, and what he's saying is, is either choose to let Christ sit on the throne of your life or choose to be friends with the, the world and be ruled by its pleasures, but you can't do both. There's a line in the sand. Put up verse four again. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You got this. It's a line in the sand. You can't choose to have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of hedonism. Jesus says, if you remain friends with the world, you're going to find yourself an enemy to God. I want to backtrack as much as I can to give you as much context. Hopefully that you remember what we talked about today when you go home. If we go back to James 4.1 and we started, James had asked us, what causes us to fight? And we said that it's our, our hedonistic passions that are at war with the Spirit of God about who's going to sit on the throne. And, and that, that warring bubbles over and it leads to conflicts with people. But now James is saying this, that these passions that are at war with Christ, they also lead to conflicts with God. So what's our hope? What, what do we do? Uh, let's look at verse 5. This is the, the turning point where there is some good news for you, okay? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is, this is one piece of good news for you. God is jealous for you. The same way a groom is jealous for his bride. God is pursuing you by his Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt that tug towards God? That's his, that's his spirit drawing you. The spirit of God wants you to step across the line in the sand and to let Jesus rule your life. And walking across the line for James means this. It means complete submission to God. It means saying, God, I'm going to choose your ways. I'm done trying to guide my own morality. I'm done trying to make my own rules. I'm done being ruled by my pleasures and my hedonism. Lord, if you say it so, then I will do it. And James tells us how to do this. And I'm actually, I'm going to go through this real quick, but I'm going to greatly, greatly simplify the scripture here. I'd, I'd love to get into it all in depth, but we simply don't have time. I'm going to stay true to scripture, but, but we're going to simplify, simplify it just a bit. Scripture says that if you want to live with Jesus as the Lord of your life, you need to do a few things. Let's look at verse seven. If you want to live with Jesus as your Lord, you first need to submit to God and resist the devil. These are two sides of the same coin. You cannot submit to God unless you're actively resisting the devil's temptations. And this, this whole idea has to do with, it's about choices. What, what are you choosing to do? Who are you choosing to follow? Who sits on the throne in your life? It's about your personal discipline. The second thing you need to do comes in verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This isn't necessarily about the choices that we make 
but it's about knowing the heart of God. It's about more than just knowing his law. It's about knowing his heart. James says that if we will draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And it's very simple to learn how to do this. Pray. Read scripture. These are the two ways we learn the heart of God. And you, if, if you do these things, you will draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And finally, James instructs the church that repentance is always necessary to have Jesus as your Lord. Starting in verse 8, reading all the way to verse 10. Here's what it says in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a commandment to be repentant. Continue on verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's pretty dark, right? There's a sense that when you consider your own sin, that, you're, that, that it kind of makes you wretched, that you mourn and weep over your sin. You're not just happy-go-lucky. God doesn't want you to live a life of sadness, but he does want you to, to mourn your sin. He wants you to regret that you, that you had hedonism sitting on the throne of your life. It's, there's this picture of a person who, who's joyfully looking back at the good old days. Like, yeah, man, I used to be into all that stuff, but they don't hate their sins. They kind of laugh at it. They kind of they find joy in the way they used to live. And James is kind of saying, listen, that, that way of life that you used to be involved in, that should make you weep. And then finally, the last verse we're going to look at today is verse 10. James says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If you have enough humility to move pleasure off the throne of your heart, to move, to move hedonism off the throne of your heart, to get your own self off the throne of your heart and to humbly say to Christ, Christ, you, you take the throne, whatever you say goes, then the Lord will exalt you and you will have a place in the great chorus of saints. Today, we started by asking the question, what causes quarrels and fights among us? And we learned that the answer is that there is a battle inside of us for the supremacy of our heart, a battle between our passions and between the lordship of Jesus. And then James drew a proverbial line in the sand. He said, you can't be friends with the world, fulfilling all the, the hedonistic desires of your heart, and at the same time be friends with God, because if you are friends with the world, you will find yourself as God's enemy. And then James gives us the remedy. The remedy begins with the fact that God is jealous for you. And his spirit calls to you. We are to submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Purify your hearts. Mourn and weep over your sin. And humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. We're going to end this sermon today right now. And we're going to do so uh, by considering a time of repentance. I think many of us need this in our life. We need to have a place where we come to church and we have public repentance. We have repentance together. We have a time of silence where we, where we just kind of say there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no podcast going. We're just quiet before the Lord and we, we can feel the Spirit examining our hearts and we just stop and we confess. I want you to consider what areas in your life you need to submit to God today. What areas of your life do you need to resist the devil? What areas of your life do you need to mourn over and weep over? 
Let's take some time for repentance this morning. I'll start and open us up and just give us some time of quiet. So, so let's pray together. Father, we... Father, we love your word and we love you. We confess to you to be people who are oftentimes find ourselves in conflict and, and when we start to look for the source of that, it is this battle in our hearts. On one hand, Lord, you have saved us and you have called us to be sons and daughters. You've called us to be your people called out. And we get excited about thinking about how we've been saved. My God, there are some of us here today who know you as Savior, but we don't treat you as Lord. We want to hold on to the benefits of your salvation and also hang on to the, the throne, be able to make all of our own decisions, be able to decide what's right by our lives. Father, we repent. Hear now the silent confessions of our heart. Father, we could stand quiet before you confessing our sins until next week. Father, remind us in the midst of our confessions that Christ has given his life and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. God, we do thank you for conviction, the conviction that leads to repentance, Lord. Continue to bring it in our lives. Bring your conviction that sanctifies us. God, we thank you that we're at peace with you by the blood of Christ. And, and this morning as we end, God, we want to sing to you one more time to tell you how grateful we are for your love and for your grace and for the work of your jealous spirit within us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.